Esther chapter 4. Now, when our kids were little, we have four. Uh, oldest now is 22, youngest is 16. So we, when they were little, um, we did what many parents did. We, we prayed with them every night. We would go up in the bed and, and, and lay down with them or kneel down next to the bed or whatever. And we would pray with our kids. And, and I know many of you have done that. And we pray with them about, you know, pray for the family. And uh, some of them were more nervous about being able to go to sleep that night than others. And we would pray about God uh, helping them get to sleep and making sure that they were safe overnight and, and all those kind of things that you pray with your kids about. Um, we would pray with them at the dinner table. Um, we would pray with them. Now, for us, and we still do this, if you see us out eating or, or come over our house, um, we're going to stand around, we're going to hold hands when we pray. That's just what we do. Um, when, when they were little, it was of necessity because mom and dad closed their eyes and who knows what's going on, right? You know what I mean? So we held hands. It was like, oh, let's hold hands. Don't you do anything. Um, as a matter of fact, we found out that some of them figured out that they didn't need their hands to, di- to dig into the food. They would just dive face first into it. So we had to keep an eye open as we went. But we taught our kids to pray. Um, and it was a privilege for us to do that. We taught them how to speak to God and, and that God would listen, no matter, no matter if you were young or, 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 or somebody that, that other people would think is important or not, God would listen to your prayer. And so our kids would often do the prayer at, at mealtime just because, yeah, God hears you too. So I'm really glad for that. But I will say this. Now that they have grown, I hope that their prayer life is not the same as it was when we prayed next to them in bed. Not that there's anything wrong with childlike faith, but if they're still there with their prayers, something has gone wrong. Something has gone off track. And and what I'm going to say to you today as we look at this passage is I'm going to ask you, how about your prayer life? Have your prayers grown from those prayers of childlike faith, the God be with mommy and daddy and God please make sure that we're safe and God do this and God do that. Have your prayers grown from that or are they still stuck in bedtime prayers? One of the things that stretches your prayer life, hopefully, is crisis. When crisis shows up in your life, whether you expect it or you don't expect it, a very typical reaction, especially from children of God, is to pray. But let me ask you, what are you praying for? When crisis comes, what are you praying for? I think the most natural human reaction is for God to deliver me from this crisis. Are we using prayer thinking that it is a way to tell God what we want? Is that what prayer is? If you boil it all down, is prayer just telling God what you want? Or is there more to it than that? Of course, there's many examples in Scripture of people who are, who are God's children pouring their soul out to God in times of trouble. And there's nothing wrong with asking God for healing, for asking God for provision, asking Him for protection, whatever, and for just telling Him what's going on in your soul. Nothing at all wrong with that. But what I'm asking is this, is that it? Is that all there is? Is it just a list of requests? I mean... When you grow in your faith, let's ask this question. Do you think God doesn't know what you want? Do you think that He's waiting to find out from you what you might need? Is is prayer really filling God in on what you'd like to see happen? Is that really what it is? What do you believe? 
How can you tell what you believe prayer is about? Well, I'll tell you how you can tell. Look at how you evaluate prayer. When you pray and you ask God to provide and you don't receive anything, what's your response? Well, I wonder what I did wrong. Did I pray the wrong prayer? Maybe I did something wrong. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe God doesn't care about me. Maybe God's not listening to me. Maybe I look in the Bible and I find some reason why I think God's not listening. What did you just do? You evaluated your prayer based on a philosophy that says, prayer is about asking God so he will give me what I ask for. And if he doesn't, something went wrong with the prayer. Isn't that what we're doing? So what we default believe about prayer is that it is this customer service line. Hey, I got a problem. Could you fix it? Thank you very much. And, you know, would you take the survey afterwards? for t- Give me five stars. Like, is that what prayer is? I hope that we grow up in our prayer life. We expect prayer to work, but what does it mean for prayer to work? So let's take a look at it, because as we watch Esther here, we're going to see that there's a response to crisis that centers around prayer, and we talk about having a relationship with God. We talk about Christianity not being a religion, but being a relationship with God. And so let me ask you, if that's true, and you believe that's true, if you talked to your friends like you talked to God, what kind of relationship would you have? If every time you saw your friends, you said, hey, listen, I just want to tell you what I want from you. We would label you narcissistic, self-centered, self, wouldn't we? Like if every time you walked up to somebody, you were like, hey, listen, can I borrow your car? Can I sleep over your house? Can you loan me $100? If that's all you did with people, what kind of relationship do you have? Relationships are about connection. Relationships are about communication. They are about caring what matters to the other person, right? They're about listening as well as speaking. Relationships are a lot more than just a list. And so as we talk to God, I'm wondering, is your prayer life growing up? So let's take a look at this. Esther chapter 4, verses 15 to 17. What we saw last week is that a crisis had arrived, that Haman had worked out a plan to destroy the Jews. And because of that crisis, Mordecai had challenged Esther to believe that God had given her the position of queen so she could save her people. He said, you have been called to this position. You have been placed in this spot for a time such as this. But being queen, we saw, wasn't enough. It didn't mean that she was going to be safe. And it didn't mean that the king was going to listen to her. She's actually literally scared to death about what it means to go and see the king on this matter. And so when we closed last week, we stopped before we saw Esther's response. The crisis had shown up, but we didn't look at how she responded to it. And so here it is. This is how Esther responds to the crisis. And I want this to be an example to us. Here's what it says. Uh, If you start with me at verse 15, down to the end of this chapter, verse 17, it says this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. 
So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. All right, so what's Esther's response? Mordecai says, well, you've got to look at this as God put you as queen so you could go and save his people. You've got to see that and you've got to go do it. The risk to you is enormous, but you've got to trust the Lord. And her response is, let's start here. Fast for three days. Don't eat anything night or day. Fast for three days. When was the last time that you went without a meal? And when you do, isn't there like all kinds of complaining about it? Oh, my stomach. Oh, I'm lightheaded. Oh, right? Isn't that us? We're like such drama queens about it. We're like, oh, I don't know if I can make it. But, and the reality is we don't really know what it's like to be hungry. A lot of people around the world know what it's like to be hungry. You and I, that's, that's a little bit far. I mean, I, you know, man, I'm hungry. We get out of here uh, after second service. It's like, oh, I don't know. My stomach is eating itself. I'm so hungry, right? <laughs> we don't know what it's like to be hungry like this. But these people, they didn't have to stop eating, but they chose to stop eating and drinking for three days. Why? What is that about? Well, there's an implication here. And the implication is that this fasting was coupled with prayer. That she was not just saying, go without food, go without drink. She was saying, turn your focus to God. There's an underlying, understood connection that they were going to fast and pray. And this was in preparation for her going to the king to take action on this crisis, potentially deadly action. There was no guarantee in Esther's mind that fasting and praying for three days was going to bring about salvation. Did you pick up on that? But she knew that if I'm going to go do this thing that God has asked me to do, I've got to start by using this prayer stuff. We've got to do this prayer thing. We've got to fast and pray. And so what are they praying about? What's happening here? Well, let me start with what prayer isn't. Prayer is not a way to get God to do what we want Him to do. Let me say that again. Prayer is not a way to get God to do what we want Him to do. When we look at it like that, we will be very childish in our relationship with God. That's how we prayed with our kids. God, would you this? God, would you that? And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's not very grown up. Because prayer is not that. Prayer is something else. And fasting, coupled with prayer, is an intensifier of prayer. But it is not an intensifier that makes God have to do it more. I've read and I've watched Preachers say, if you really want God to do this or that, fast and pray. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with fasting. I think it's a wonderful thing. We'll talk about what it is. But I will tell you this. Because you fast and pray does not obligate God to do what you asked Him to do. You are not leveraging God into your will. You with me? And, by the way, if you could, would you? I mean, if you're in a sane moment... Would you force God to do your will? I mean, really, we've seen your will, right? Almighty God, omniscient God, who knows the end from the beginning, completely good, completely faithful, always does the right thing, God, has all the power to do everything that needs to be done, but you show up and say, God, would you do this? Do you really want God to change his mind and do what you want? Really? course not. That's foolish, except in crisis we start to think it sounds pretty good. 
And so prayer is about setting ourselves right before God. Prayer is not a way to obligate God to do what we ask. And so what is it? First of all, we are asking for God's help. We are told many times to bring our requests to God. And so there's nothing wrong. In fact, it is proper. It is even biblical to bring our requests to God. But it's not because we need God to know what what our to-do list is. And it's not because when I ask him, God has to answer and do what I ask. It's for this. We recognize our complete dependence on God when we go and ask him stuff. When Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread in the Lord's Prayer, What he's representing is, you and I need to understand that without God, we are nothing. Without the grace and the goodness of God, we don't exist. Whether you believe in God or don't believe in God, the truth is, if God did not hold you together, if God did not form you, if God did not give you life, you are not here. None of us are. None of this is without God. Colossians 1 tells us he holds all things together. He literally holds things together. And so prayer, as we go with our requests, it's not about, oh, discovery for God. Oh, is that what you need? Oh, okay, then it's about me going, God, I depend on you. I need you. I'm not looking other places for my hope. I'm looking to you. You're my savior. You're my solution. Sometimes the best result of crisis the best result is that prayer regrips our absolute dependence on God. That we are reminded and that we get a good grip on, man, I need God. Sometimes have you lost your grip on that? Have you lived your life like you didn't really need Him? I mean, theoretically, you needed Him. But when it came right down to it, I can kind of handle today. I can kind of handle tomorrow. I've got, you know, I got my savings plan. I got my job. I got my family. I got my friends. I got, I can kind of do it. I'll, I'll get with you, God, later when things, go, oh, when things go wrong, what becomes very apparent? God, I need you. I can't do it without you. It is a much more spiritually healthy place when I recognize my dependence on God. And so the Jews gather together and they cry out to God, God, save us. They pour out their fear. They pour out their sorrow. Very appropriate, very good. But it's only a part of prayer. Now, I want you to see this. If prayer was transactional, if prayer was like, God, I want you to know what I need, uh, you know, what I'd like to happen, what I need, you'd only have to do it once, right? Right? But how long did they do this? Three days. Why the three days? Is it because God is really thick and he, you can't get through to him and you got to keep talking? He's got a lot going on and you can't... Is that why you talk to him for three days? No, you know who the thick one is? Right here. I need three days in the presence of God to get my soul right, to get my mind right. I need it. In fact, when I get down to it, prayer is not about changing God. It's about tuning in to the heart of God. As a matter of fact, you know, I'm in crisis, fasting, going without food, going without drink makes no sense when I'm in crisis, humanly speaking, because I become weaker. Why would I become weaker when I'm facing a crisis? Does that make any sense? It only makes sense when you are not the solution. When you are not the power, you are not the strength, you are not the hope when he is. 
That's when it makes sense to say, I'll put food and drink aside for three days because you'll be my strength. And I won't be tempted to trust on my strength. I will trust in yours. I believe with all of my soul that prayer and fasting, praying intently has the effect of tuning our soul into God's heart. When was the last time you really cared what God cared about? When was the last time it really mattered to you what God wanted, what God said, what His desires were, what hurt Him, what brought Him joy? When was the last time that mattered to you in an intense fashion? Prayer and fasting tune us in to the heartbeat of God. It is not an easy process. It is not a quick process, but it is a necessary process. And sometimes in the crisis, what God is doing is saying, will you trust me here? Will you know me here? Will you rest in me here? Or will you think other things? Will you go other ways? Many times when crisis comes, God could solve it like that. But what he asks us to do is to wait. Who here likes waiting? You go out today after church and you go to the grocery store, you get in line, you're going to pick the short line or the long line. Ooh, I love waiting. Let me get behind that, that lady with the three grocery carts, you know. Of course not. Nobody likes waiting. But waiting can be very spiritually healthy. If waiting calls you to a faith that endures, a trust that lasts. And crisis is an invitation to trust God in a bigger, fuller, deeper way. In this story, what we know God already had the answer in place, right? Esther's already there. And I think what you'll see when Esther goes to talk to the king, that there's no barriers in the way of God answering. But God says, wait, wait. Let's get this straight. Let's get this right. Why? Because Not because God needed to figure out some plan. Oh, let me think about it for three days. But because the people of God needed to focus They needed to be sure about who was going to do it and who wasn't going to do it. I believe with all of my soul that prayer and fasting are about taking the big things of life, the crises of life, and tuning in to God. It's about setting aside regular life, eating and drinking and that kind of stuff. And for you, fasting might not be about that. Fasting might be about setting aside something else that distracts you from focusing on your relationship with God. Is there anything in your life that distracts you from having time with God, focused time with God? Anything that you could think of? Anything that might be good for you to fast from? To say, I'm going to set that, you know, I don't have any time. I have no time to think. I'm always busy. My mind is always racing. There's always stuff to do. Is that because that's what you choose to do with your time? Is there anything that maybe if you just kind of like, took a break from it, set it aside, that you could instead tune in to something that would feed your soul, restore your very life, maybe. So because for them it was food and drink, and and that's great, do that. But if that's not the thing, maybe there's something else you would find to fill your time instead of pursuing God in that relationship. Think about this. How many times in the Bible does it talk about prayer by using these words? Seeking the Lord. Seeking the Lord. Now, if you think about prayer as a give God my to-do list, seeking the Lord doesn't really... 
It's like playing hide and seek and you go tag your it and now you got to do what I told you to do. It's kind of like, that doesn't make any sense, right? What does it mean to seek the Lord? Would you apply that to your prayer life? Have you sought the Lord? Moses talks about seeking him with all your heart and soul. That talks about passion, doesn't it? In Deuteronomy 4, he says, you should seek the Lord with all your heart and soul. Would you describe your prayer life like that? I seek God with all my heart and soul. David talks about seeking the Lord always so that he would find strength in him. When you go to God, do you find strength in God? Do you find hope and encouragement in God? Or do you just check it off your list of things to do? David talks to his son Solomon, and he says, Solomon, seek the Lord all the days of your life. The Psalms are full of counsel to seek the Lord. Isaiah tells the Israelites, seek the Lord while he may be found. And so have you ever sought the Lord in prayer? Have you ever gone after God? Not because of what he could do for you, but because you wanted him. You ever done that? Have you ever fasted from something, fasted from food because you wanted to seek the Lord? That's a little different than begging Him to do something, isn't it? I'm hoping that our prayer life will grow, that we will seek the Lord, that prayer and fasting will tune us in to what He is, to who He is. Crisis may be the motivation for that. You might find yourself in crisis, and what that crisis might wind up doing is not being about that crisis at all. It might be about your soul connecting with your God and knowing Him in a way you never have before. The solution to your crisis may not be crisis averted. The solution to your crisis might be God's people seeking Him. Man, will we seek Him? I believe this prayer and fasting was about setting their hearts to trust in the Lord completely. And and I think that as, as Esther ends her statement, pray with me for three days. Let's do this together. I think that you can see there is a connectivity to praying together about stuff. There's something spiritual that happens when you and I covenant to join together in prayer over something. Last year, I said, when we did the the idea of uh, where's hope going, I said, would somebody covenant to pray with, with me this week for this church? For the next seven days, would you pray with me? And then we did. And what happened? Did you see? Did you watch what God did as we prayed together? Did you see him stirring up a movement of the Spirit of God here? Did you see it? What happens when we pray together? You and I join in, connecting to the heart of God and connecting to the heart of one another. If you pray for somebody, you know, you're, you're here and somebody says, hey, pray for me about this or this is going on. You pray for them. Suddenly you are invested in them. You are connected to them spiritually in a way where their successes or their victories or their blessings become yours. And their sorrows and their griefs and their hurts become yours. You are with them. Esther says, pray with me. Fast with me. Who's going in? Esther. But they're all going in, see? We're doing this together. We're joining our hearts together through prayer. But Esther says, all of us together still doesn't mean I know what's going to come out. I don't know what's going to come out. And I think that's so huge. She says, if I die, I die. In three days, I'll go. And if I die, I die. I don't know what's going to come out of this. I don't think that prayer and fasting is going to mean that God has to deliver. I just know that I'm supposed to go. And it's going to take me a little bit to get to the place where I can surrender to God's ask in my life. It's going to take all of us praying together for me 
to have the courage to do what I know I need to do without knowing what will come out of it. What God tells me to do, I'll do. What He tells me to say, I'll say. Pray with me for three days because that's a big thing. Do we respond to crisis like that? God, I know what you need me to do. I don't know if it's going to work. I don't know if it's going to succeed. I don't know if it's going to be okay, but I'm going to do what you say I need to do. I'm going to say what you say I need to say because I trust you. Does it increase our desperation for God when we pray? God, I'm desperate for you. My soul thirsts for you. Or does it increase my desperation for some outcome we want him to produce? Do you want God or do you want his stuff? And so what does Esther do? Pick up with me in chapter 5, first couple verses. Let's see how this plays out. She says, pray with me. So they pray for three days. And then chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day... Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw the queen, Esther, standing in the court, he was pleased with her, held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. So here we go. She walks in. There's no guarantee she's going to make it through this. But after three days of prayer and fasting, she goes before the king. And it seems like in that prayer and fasting, and I think this is huge. I hope that you get this. Prayer is not just a one-way conversation. When you will pray, God will speak to you. I'm not talking about you're going to hear things and you know see. I'm just talking about there is a way that God convinces your soul about what needs to happen. And it is unmistakable. I've, I've had it happen to me over and over again. It's like, I, you know, I don't know what to do, Lord. I don't, I'm going to seek you. And when I seek you, I'm just going to say, God, whatever the right thing to do is, show me that because I'll do that. Wherever the right place to put my eyes, just show me and I'll do that. And then there comes this certainty to my soul. And when it does, I know it's time to move. When it doesn't come, it's not time to move yet. Do you know what I mean? If you've ever experienced that, you know what I mean. If you've never experienced that, listen. Try it. Say, God, listen, I don't know what you'll ask me to do. I don't know what you'll ask me to say. I don't know what you'll ask me to sacrifice. But I'll tell you this. I'm going to seek you, and whatever you direct, that's what I'll do. Just try it. What I'll guarantee you is this. If your heart is open before the Lord, God will show you what he wants. It won't be a question of I don't know what you want. It'll be a question of will you do or not. Many times I've been at the place where God made very clear what I was supposed to do, and I said, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. Yeah, no. I'm I'm sure that would be wonderful and everything. It sounds great, but I'm not doing that. And God comes after you and comes after you and comes after you and says, come on, trust me, Mark, trust me. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I've done? Don't you see how much I love you? Trust me. Yeah, I don't know if I can. And that time of prayer is that wrestling, that seeking God. Do I really believe who God is? Do I really know Him? Or do I, have I made Him into something else? Will I trust Him? And I think we see Esther walk into the king's court, and I think it's hard for us to imagine how fearful it was to know that the law was you walk in, you die. But God has given her some guidance here. And she walks in on that third day. She doesn't wait till the fourth day. She doesn't go in on the, She goes in on the third day. And it talks about her putting on her royal robes. 
which is weird because, you know, Esther does not seem to be somebody who's impressed with her position and her power. When she went in before the king before, she didn't even care what she took. She just took whatever they told her to take. But there seems to be something of God's guidance here, not just in going in on the third day, but in putting on a royal robe. Maybe it was so that God knew that the king needed to identify her quickly from across the court or whatever it was. But, but she went in under the direction of God. Three days worth of seeking God had brought clarity to her about the plan. And I think what we read from here is God's plan, God's leading, playing out because Esther has seen what God wants her to do. And so she walks in. She could be put to death. She's waiting to see what the king will do. And the king says, I will spare you. But you can see that this is an effect of God's work in the king's heart. Because not only does he spare her, but it's going to to echo out into her people. That God is going to use her courage and these three days of praying to lead her to the place of deliverance that God has already planned before it ever occurred to the people to pray. God has already planned their deliverance. You got that? So what is this whole process of crisis about? Is it about God finding out that something went wrong and trying to fix it? Or has it been about all the time God showing his goodness to his people? Even the crisis, even the threat, even the hatred. As Esther walks in that court, I think one of the things prayer did is it convinced her that it did not depend on Xerxes. She was not looking at... Can you imagine if you went in and you thought, I hope he likes me, I hope he saves me, I hope he's pleased, I hope he's not in a bad mood. Can you imagine the stress level that that brings if it all depends on another person? But Esther didn't walk in like that. The courage that she had, the courage she found, was because she walked in going, it's not about you. I know the one who's in charge. And so I'm going to trust him. And I'm going to know that whatever comes out of this is his. Now we're talking about some peace, aren't we? Now we're talking about some solid ground to stand on, right? And that's what Esther does. She walks into the king and you hear the king say to her, you know, Hey, whatever you want, I will give it to you. Turns out, God has been at work in Xerxes' heart that their trust as Jews was well-placed as they sought God. Without the days of seeking God, it may have been that she would have walked in and everything would have happened, but they might not have understood where it was coming from, who was doing it, right? But after you've prayed, after you've sought the Lord for three days, when the king responds like this, you get it. Ah, look at God. Esther had been released to act in faith because they had sought the Lord together. And so the king says, what is it? What do you want? What's your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. Seems like the king's in a good mood, right? Seems like this is a perfect opportunity. God has prepared his heart to be open to a request. It's probably an overstatement to say up to half my kingdom, but I will tell you, if you, if you ever dig into the history here, this king had a like habit of saying that to people he liked. And one of the women of the court actually asked him for something. She asked him for his royal robes. It created all kinds of problems because I don't think he actually meant it, right? So he's saying, up to half the kingdom, I will give it to you. So if you're Esther and you've come on a mission to save your people, you walk into the king, you found the courage to walk in, to put your life on the line, he saves you, and then he says this to you, what do you want? I will give you whatever you want. What do you do next? Save my people. Thank you. Right? Huh. That would be 
the normal thought process. That would be the way that we would tend to go. But I think the time of praying, the time of seeking God, had not just been to convince her that God would do what he wanted, that God was good and trustworthy. I think it was a source of guidance about how to go about it. The king's response, if she was watching the king's response to decide what she would do, it would tell her, ask now. But I think she was not tuned into the king's response. I think God had said, here's how I want you to prepare it. And I think there's some reason for that. And I'll talk about that as we close because it kind of leads us into the things coming ahead. Prayer releases us. Real prayer releases us from watching what others do and say and think and, and interpreting them as signs and opportunities. When you're tuned into God, you don't need to be tuned into all that mess. Well, I don't know. I'm just praying that God will send me a sign. How about just know God and ask Him what you should do and don't worry about the signs, right? Have you ever thought something was a sign and it turned out not to be? Have you ever made that mistake? We're very susceptible as humans to what we think we see in, in our understanding. How about we just let God speak? We just say, God, here it is. I'm all in. I'm surrendered to you. Even if it costs me my life, I will follow you. So what does, what does she do to the king's request? Pick up with me at verse 4 down to verse 8, and we'll, we'll end here today. Here's what it says. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now, what is your petition? It will be given to you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me, with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. So she gets the king and Haman, Haman, the one who has decided to destroy the Jews, the one that she has to expose if this is going to be solved. She gets the king and Haman to come to a banquet. Seems like just the three of them. Some people read this and they think Esther's nervous and she backs out because she's just delaying that God had asked her to speak up. I don't think that that doesn't make any sense. When the king says, what do you want up to half your kingdom? It doesn't make sense that if she's nervous that she backs up from that request. I think this is God at work. I think saying to the king twice, when, when the king says to her twice, you can have whatever you want. And what she says is, come, I want to do something for you. I think this was something God had put in her heart to do. I think it was a plan that God had spoken to her and God had shown her. She doesn't know how it will turn out, but she said, hey, I don't know what's going to come at the last step, but I know what the next step is, so I'm going to do that. Whether it turns out well, whether it turns out poorly. Do you and I have that kind of faith in prayer? That whatever God asks me to do next, that's what I'll do. I don't know how it all turned out, but whatever you ask me to do, that's what I'll do. I'm surrendered like that. I believe prayer brings us there. Real prayer brings us there. Now, why does God lead this way? The delay doesn't come with an explanation. There's no, hey, God did it this way because. But it does seem to fit with the protocol of, of that kind of culture. When you asked an important person for a big favor, you kind of buttered them up and you took some time to do it and you surrounded it with lots of gifts and honor. So it seems to fit that. But these banquets, you know, they, they delay this request. 
from tonight, the third day, into tomorrow night, the fourth day. What is that? We're going to see how it plays out over the next couple of weeks. But I want you to just recognize this. The next day, some amazing stuff happens. In fact, the, later this night, some stuff happens. And so next week, in the, or two weeks from now, in the following weeks, we're going to look at how this plays out. What you're going to find is this. I believe that God is leading her because some of the stuff that's about to happen wouldn't have happened if she asked her request that night, if she asked her request in front of the king that day. Some of the stuff that's about to happen wouldn't have happened. And I also believe even more than that, and this should be a great source of comfort to those of you with lost loved ones, those with you, uh, people who care about people who are wandering and astray in darkness, right? God is not about to pull the trigger on this until he's exhausted every opportunity for someone to respond to his work. I think God is giving Haman a chance to, to turn, to figure out that he's on the wrong path, on the wrong track, and do the right thing. I think he's showing Haman there's a chance. He's going to give him, till the last moment of opportunity, a chance to do the right stuff, to get on the right path. And I think if you're wondering about what God is doing in your life and and why God's not acting, I'll tell you this. I know this about God. A God who sent his son to die for people is not going to give up on people. So if you're wondering about the person that you care about and and whether God's at work in life, I'll tell you right now, God is chasing them down. He's giving them every chance to do what's right, to turn to him, to try. He's He's throwing his best opportunities their way. They may respond to it, they might not, but God hasn't given up on them until the point where God knows this is now sealed. They won't turn from here, right? There's a lot of misery in between, isn't there? But I want to give you this hope that God cares about them more than you do. And God is omniscient and he will never turn away from the opportunity if there's any opportunity for that person to turn by faith in Him, to give their life to Him, God is going to wait until that opportunity is exhausted, right? And I think even with an evil, wicked man like Haman, to see God's grace pour out of, you're not going to get it tonight, you'll get it tomorrow night. We'll see what happens in the day in between. And in that day in between, I think what you'll see is God offering Haman a chance to see that power and prestige isn't what he thinks it is. It's not life, it's not hope, it's not peace. He's given him a chance to open his eyes and see. And when Haman doesn't, when all opportunities are exhausted, then God steps in and God deals with him. And so we'll pick it up. We'll pick up the story about later that night in a couple of weeks. But let me ask you this today. How are you responding to crisis? How do you, in your soul, I know humanly speaking how we respond to it. We want to run away. We want to pull the ripcord. We want to have the parachute come out. We want to disappear. When crisis shows up, we want out, humanly speaking. But does your faith have firm enough grip of your soul that when crisis shows up, you move closer to the one that you trust in? Do you believe that God cares about you enough that when crisis shows up, you go seek him? You see him as your refuge. You see him as your strength. You see him as your comfort. You see him as your guide. And you don't pull away from him. You step into him. Do we have faith like that? I know there's questions that come up like, well, if he cared about me, why doesn't he fix this? I get that. 
But those questions and those doubts don't solve anything, do they? Have you ever listened to those questions? What do they do to your soul? They just erode the health of your soul, don't they? But if you will step in instead of stepping away, how we respond in crisis probably says a lot about what we actually believe about God. What if crisis really comes down to a question about who we're trusting? Maybe you're in crisis right now because God wants you to know Him. Maybe someone you know or or you are in crisis just because you need to know Him eternally. You haven't given your life to God yet, and He keeps inviting you to. Today, do that. It's not about the crisis. It's about whether you know God or not, to whether you've given Him your life or not. Maybe crisis is just a way of God pulling you close to Him, knowing that He's walking with you, even through the valley of the shadow of death. A God would care about me enough to pull me close in times of trouble? Yes, it's exactly what He would do. And so let me ask you today, how's your prayer life? Is there ever a time when you've been desperate enough for God to seek Him? How long has it been since you've really sought God? I'm going to invite you today to do that. I'm going to invite you to kick that off right now. So we're going to close in a word of prayer. I'm going to ask you just to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I'm going to invite you to a beginning of a conversation with God this morning. If it's been a while since you've had a conversation beyond God give me this or God give me that, it might feel a little weird. But maybe it'll be good. Maybe as we just take this posture of prayer, you just have to start that conversation. God, I don't know how to seek you. I don't know how to talk to you. I don't know how to grow up in my prayer life, but I want to. Or maybe you want to say, God, it's been a while, and I've known it before, and I've let go of it, and I want to come back to it. Would you talk to him like that right now, right here in this moment?